This is They Create Worlds, Episode 71, A Tale of Brodaboon. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We've talked about them tangentially before. Carmen San Diego, some educational game. Now, they just want to do your desktop publishing. Brodoboom! <laughs> yes, well, uh, not really desktop publishing, as we'll come to see, but certainly one of the first companies that really wanted you to make use of that printer that nobody was buying for home use at the time. But they also made games. And we don't like printers anyway. They lead to sadness, especially those ribbon printers. Yes. But they did make games, as you said. That's right. Though I think it's fair to say that they shed their identity as a game company very early in their existence, which is something we'll look at. Obviously, they had a few hit games later on, Myst being one of the most prominent. But Broderbund's history as a video game company, or as a computer game company more accurately really only spans the very first part of its history. After that, it was really more involved in other areas. That was both good for them and uh, in some ways bad for them, which we'll go into all sorts of detail on in a little while. Sounds good to me. So I understand that Brodeboon was founded by two brothers. That's right. Doug and Gary Carlston. A very interesting duo. It also grew to encompass other members of their family as well. That word Broderbund, it's it's not a real word. It's kind of a pastiche of a couple of words that in different languages mean brotherhood. It really is a company that, at least in its early days, was defined by its family. Doug Carlston was the main driver in founding the company. Doug and Gary, the whole Carlston brood, were the children of a minister who then became a seminary professor of New Testament. So he was a religious figure and he was a scholar. And the family settled in Iowa. That's where uh, he ended up teaching, the elder Carlston. So that's where the family spent most of their formative years. Very Midwestern, very wholesome. Um, If there's one thing that everyone always comments on about the Carlstons is that they were just so gosh darn nice. Always a good start there. And, you know, and it wasn't a put on. I mean, they really were and are. They're still alive. They really are nice people. That was built into their DNA and, you know, kind of these Midwestern Protestant values. Doug got exposed to computers for the first time while he was in high school in the 60s. He was a bright kid, a bright student, and so he was sent away to a summer camp where he got to fiddle around with computers a little bit. This was around 1964. And then later on in high school, he got a job at the University of Iowa in the computer lab where he was basically just sweeping the floors. I think he might have done some punch card machine operation as well, but it wasn't a job really interacting with the computer. But anyone who worked there, even if they were just sweeping the floors, were given an account on the computer so they could fool around if they wanted to, and he very much wanted to fool around. He learned some programming. Doug Carlston was never master programmer. This is not 
like Ken Williams, who we talked about in Sierra, who was, you know, a brilliant programmer. And that's what got him kind of gravitating towards doing the whole online system slash Sierra online thing. But he did know how to program. He programmed a bit. He went to Harvard. In the middle of his time at Harvard, he took a semester or a year, I can't remember which, off to go teach in Botswana. Because why not? Well, wouldn't that tie into some of the seminary work that a lot of uh Yeah, no, that's a good point. Do? I don't know. You know, I'm not sure anyone's asked him. I don't know if he went there as, as a missionary thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He might have. Good point. I don't think anyone specifically asked that. So, yeah, he went off to teach in Botswana, learned Swahili, decided to write a textbook on Swahili just for the heck of it. <laughs> well, I'm sure for more than just the heck of it, but, you know, why not? <laughs> right. Right. If you know the language and you can actually convey that language to someone else who is not familiar with it, I imagine that's not one of the prime languages to learn. It's not like I could go to my local high school and go, hey, teach me Swahili. Yes, absolutely. He did that. He graduated Harvard, wrote a few more language textbooks, kind of bounced around a little bit. He went to graduate school and was studying economics, but then his grant ran out after like a year and a half or two years. It wasn't just his grant. There were nine students that were there on a grant, and suddenly the grant funding was pulled. <laughs> Everyone was surprised. It wasn't expected. That ended that little foray. Then he instead went and got himself a law degree. 1975, I think, he graduated from the law school, and he went to work at a big downtown law firm in Chicago on the 83rd floor of the Sears Tower. Much of what he was working on there was water rights. Lake Michigan has a lot of water rights kind of issues. And then he bought a TRS-80, one of those first microcomputers, to kind of help in his legal work. I uh, thought that might be a fun thing to play around with. Did it really end up helping much in the legal work? I don't think as much as he had hoped, but it just seemed like a kind of fun thing to fool around with. So he did. He bought this uh, TRS-80 and fooled around with it, programmed a little with it. So after a few years of doing this, he gets burned out on this big city lawyering stuff. So he decides to become an old-fashioned country lawyer instead. His family, his parents, had built a summer home up in Maine because, I guess, I mean, just because he's a real curious, inquisitive, and eclectic guy, during the construction of that summer home, he basically apprenticed with the builder while they were building the home and learned the construction trade, learned how to build houses. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. He decided it might be fun to go up to Maine and do a little law and build some houses and flip them. Just kind of as a sideline. So he went up to Maine and did that. <laughs> Continued on the, on the law thing. He was still a lawyer, but then also doing this house building and flipping on the side. Well, he ultimately decided that things were a bit boring in backwoods Maine. <laughs> the uh, continuing oil shock kind of put an end to the demand for summer homes in the backwoods of Maine. He decided to give that up as well. He decided he was done with law. He was burned out on law. Didn't want to do that anymore. But he had been continuing with the programming on this TRS-80, and he'd made some simple games. Galactic Saga, as he called them, the first game in the saga, Galactic Empire, was just a very basic go-out-and-conquer-the-galaxy kind of game, kind of like Master of Orion, but not in anywhere near the complexity of Master of Orion. We don't want to do a one-for-one comparison there. 
Way, way, way pre-alpha Master of Orion. <laughs> right. Then he did a space trading game after that, Galactic Trader. And then he did a third game that combined some of all the elements of what he'd done before. This was kind of his galactic saga. So he decided, well, maybe I can try selling these things. He looked in the computer magazines. He was subscribing to some of the very earliest computer magazines that were out there, fanzines and whatnot, and looked in there and saw who was advertising game programs and sent copies of his game to these companies and was like, hey, this is my game. Want to sell? (laughs) And Adventure International in Florida which is a company that we've probably mentioned before. I'm sure we have, but we haven't gone in detail on in any particular episode yet. One of the very earliest kind of triple threats. It was a developer, a publisher, and a retailer, and did some distribution. They were kind of involved in everything because at this point, we're talking the late 1970s, the industry was so small that you could be involved in everything. Yeah. Send it to them, send it to another company called the Software Exchange, I believe. And sent it, I think, to a couple others as well. And you see, gave them all non-exclusive rights to sell his game. So you see, he was marketing it through various companies. He didn't have a company. He was marketing it through different companies. But all of them had a non-exclusive license. He was selling it through multiple outlets in that way. They were the publisher. You know, he wasn't the publisher. It was, you know, the business then was kind of vaguely mail order, vaguely hobbyist, vaguely vague. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a kind of arrangement that even two years later wouldn't work. But in 1978 or so, when he was doing this, it worked. So that worked out. And so I was like, OK, well, I've had some success with this and I don't want to do law anymore. Maybe it's time I go found my own company. He knew the perfect person to do that with his brother, Gary, who was living on the opposite end of the country, quite literally in Eugene, Oregon. Sure, why not? Gary Carlston is a very quixotic figure, a very whimsical figure, I think. Again, very bright. All the Carlstons are very bright. But very kind of happy-go-lucky and let's go on adventures and see where life takes us. He goes to Harvard and wants to study architecture. Well, he can't really get into the architecture program. So then his friends were like, yeah, you should try this thing, this uh, Celtic Studies. There's a Celtic Studies department. You should go do that. And it's like, okay, I can do Celtic Studies. Sure. So he goes to Celtic Studies and the program's full. On the same floor, the same building the Celtic Studies is in, there's also Scandinavian Studies. And he's like, okay, our family is of Scandinavian origin, because that is their origin. That might be fun. I'll do Scandinavian Studies. He does Scandinavian Studies. After he gets out of school, he goes to Sweden. Because why not? He just studied Scandinavia, right? Right. So go to Sweden, have fun. He'd also been involved in, you know, he's a decent basketball player, not like playing on the college team or anything, not like he was going to be in the NBA, but he was a decent basketball player. He did pick up basketball games and whatnot. So he does pick up basketball games in Sweden. He ends up as the coach of a Swedish girls basketball team. Makes sense. Because why not? He ends up being a very good coach of a Swedish girls basketball team. They win a state championship a couple of times. I don't know in what class, when you win a national championship, were they the best team in Sweden or was it just the best team in whatever amateur whatever they were in? I don't know. No one's really asked him that either. But they were like two or three times Swedish national champions because of course they were. (laughs) 
as Gary Carlston likes to to tell it, I haven't interviewed him, but he's he's been interviewed before. Gary Carlson likes to tell it. Not all of the Swedish women are those six foot tall statuesque blondes of popular myth. But the basketball players that he coached were. <laughs> so, you know, he's a young guy just out of college. Living the dream, I guess. Something like that anyway. <laughs> yeah. So then he comes back. Uh, he comes back to Washington State. He teaches Swedish for a while, like the University of Washington. Then he tries to get involved in some entrepreneurial stuff. He tried to start a tour company with Doug. They were going to bring in tourists from Europe and, and Asia, arrange bus tours and whatnot for them. That kind of didn't work, and Gary ends up owing Doug some money, as a matter of fact, on that little venture. He tries a thing where he is importing reflectors, bicycle safety reflector equipment, from Scandinavia, because why not? Mm -hmm. And that business wasn't really working out very well. He became the state director for the March of Dimes for the state of Oregon, organizing fundraising events and what have you for the March of Dimes. He wasn't very energized by that business. So he is ready to try something new at about the same time Doug's ready to try something new. Doug's basically like, we should get together and do a game company. So Doug and his dog make the great cross-country trek from Maine to Oregon in his, like, 1969 automobile. Hey, that's the great American road trip. The transmission dies somewhere in the Rockies. Oh, dear. But he keeps driving. It's all downhill anyway. Um, he gets through the up part of the Rockies, and so it's all downhill. So he keeps going with uh, smoke pouring out of the front of the car. That's probably not safe. It's also snowing. That's especially not the safe. The windshield wipers aren't particularly working. How do you survive? I don't know, but he did. The car finally quit about five miles outside Eugene. That was close enough that his brother could hop in his car and come pick him up. Worst case, he could always just walk. <laughs> he can't really walk five miles with a dog. I can. Well, the dog probably wouldn't be very happy. Depends on the dog. So he made it to Eugene, Oregon, and they decide that they are going to found this company together. Originally, it was going to be a three-way partnership. Originally, their brother, Don, who was more academically minded, he followed their father into academia and became a professor. Originally, Don was going to join in on this venture as well, though he does not end up joining. I think he invested a little bit of money in the company, but he never became a partner. He never joined. When they're coming up for a name for it, they are wanting something that is about this kind of idea of the family coming together to do this thing. They don't really tell this part of the origin story. Doug Carlston and, and Gary, they usually talk about the fact that it's similar to the Swedish word for brother. The word for brother in Swedish is bror, but there's kind of a brotherhood is broderskap. This bruder part comes out of that a little bit. There was also this organization in South Africa called the Bruderbond, which is Afrikaans for brotherhood. And they were kind of a secret society dedicated to perpetuating Afrikaans' interests and were very much a part of the whole apartheid thing and the establishment of apartheid in South Africa. So they talk a little bit about the Swedish origin, but 
I think it's more likely that it comes out of South Africa because you know what country borders South Africa? Lots of countries do, but for the purpose of this exercise, Botswana. Ah. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm sure Doug Carlston's politics are not in any way aligned with the politics of the Broderbond. Okay? I want to be very clear on that. But I think this is probably a word that he probably picked up. You know, it's a word that means brotherhood. And he probably picked up on that word. And he actually used that. There was a group in his Galactic Empire game that was called the Broderbund. That's where he first used the word. And so they decided, since they were making this company, forming this company with the brothers, that a word that's kind of like brotherhood made sense. But they changed the spelling. Kind of this is Gary Carlston and the Swedish kind of legacy coming in. They changed the spelling to make it seem more Scandinavian. Broderbond, the Afrikaner word, is spelled B-R-O-E-D-E-R-B-O-N-D. They made it sound more Scandinavian by going Broderbund, B-U-N-D. And then they represented the O-E with an a null O, essentially, which is something that's used in Danish. Not Swedish, <laughs> but in Danish, where you put a slash through the O and it changes the pronunciation. It's kind of similar to the umlaut in German. It kind of changes it to that O-E sound, that E sound. It's still Scandinavian. It's in the same area. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the word Broderbund is not a real word. Broderbund does not mean brotherhood in Swedish or Danish or any Scandinavian language. But it's kind of taking this Afrikaans word and mixing in some Scandinavian voodoo, and it vaguely means we're brothers and we have a company together. Hooray! Yay! So that's Broderbund. It's founded in 1980 and then incorporated in late 1981, September 1981. That's the start of their journey together. They have the three galactic games that he made. They have this little accounting program that he also made in his spare time. So even in the very beginning, they were... They had more than just games, though that little program never did anything. Their brother Don did contribute a game to the original set called Tank Commander. It was based on a game on the Play-Doh system that he had seen, because he's in academia, so he had access to a Play-Doh terminal, created a game called Tank Commander. And then they had one other program. I'm not sure what it was, but they had six programs initially when they started this company in 1980. No really good way to sell them. They got lucky on the first day. They made a sales call to a store in like Washington, D.C., I think it was. And they got a nice order, a several hundred dollar order from this first store that they talked to. So they duplicated all the tapes and they got all the Ziploc baggies and they stapled them together and they sent them out. And they were on their way, had their first sale. But over the ensuing months, they really didn't have much in the way of sales. It was a bit of a struggle. There's no infrastructure in place. They're way out of the way in the middle of nowhere in Eugene, Oregon. They're not in a major metropolitan area that's falling in love with computers like some of the other early companies, like online systems that started down in L.A., where there were computer stores around and you could drive to the nearby computer stores and at least get a few orders even just in your local area that way. They're up in Eugene, Oregon. I'm, there probably is a computer store somewhere. I'm not sure at this point whether there was or not, but there probably was. Maybe even Jeff Tunnell's store, who later founded Dynamics, because he's from that area. But there's not a thriving scene, so you have to go out elsewhere, and they're not really able to make sales trips. 
they make a sales call or two, but they're just not getting much of the business. It's a struggle. There's really no distribution at this point. There's really not much of an industry at this point. And so since they're kind of out of the center of things out in Eugene, it's difficult for them. Their first break comes when they go to the West Coast Computer Fair in 1980. It's a kind of big gathering. It only lasted a few years, but it was a kind of a big gathering of all of the computer companies that were around on the West Coast. They're showing off their games. One of the nearby booths, there's a gentleman with a trading company, an import-export firm, that is showing off the wares of a Japanese company called StarCraft. No relation to Vespine Gas. Aww. StarCraft was founded by an individual named Minoru Nakazawa. Nakazawa's family had been in the silk business for generations. They were pretty well known in the silk business, which led to a very unusual situation where even though Nakazawa and his family were commoners, he ended up becoming very close friends as a child with the second son of the Emperor Hirohito. So they were a common family, but they were a common family with connections. Very powerful connections. The way the silk business works in Japan, or worked in Japan for hundreds of years, it probably doesn't work this way now, is the harvesting was largely done by unwed young women who usually came from lower backgrounds and end up working there for a few years until they end up finding some farmer that they can marry It's a very kind of paternalistic business is the point that I'm getting to. Minoru Nawazaka broke away from this, and he did something very similar from the paternalistic aspect of it in the computer software industry. He started StarCraft as a computer software house, but exclusively in in the beginning working with businesses, doing uh, custom software for businesses. We've talked before how there was a very lucrative business in Japan for custom software solutions for business clients custom tailoring all their software. He noticed the first microcomputers coming in from the United States, things like the Apple II that were exported into Japan and probably some of the Commodore stuff as well. At this time, programming games was a hobby in the United States for most people too and and in Britain, but it was really a hobby in Japan because the idea of a career in Japan which is maybe slightly less true today than it was then, but still largely rings true today as well, is your career as Mr. Japanese Salaryman is you enter company out of college, you work for company rest of life. Lifetime employment, while it has started to erode a little bit in Japan, is kind of the way of things in Japan. So this microcomputer thing, this programming games thing, was seen as something that was going to be a fad. It was something that young people were doing, but it wasn't going to be something that you could make a career with a capital C out of. It wasn't something that employed you for life. So it was looked down upon, very much looked down upon, as something not very serious. Now, I'm talking specifically about early microcomputer programming. Obviously, the arcade companies, there are some big arcade companies at this point, like Sega and Namco and Taito, but we're not talking about them. We are talking about microcomputers and programming games on microcomputers. 
So people that did that, which were usually young guys, often college age students or right out of college, people that were doing that were looked very down upon in Japanese society. It was not looked at as a worthwhile occupation. So what Nakazawa did is he went looking for some of these hotshot hobbyist programmers because he already had a software company. StarCraft already existed doing this institutional stuff. He had uh, established the company in 1979. He went looking for some of these hotshot hobbyist programmers so that he could employ them and have them churn out games for him. But it was a very unequal relationship. It was very similar to the idea of the young women harvesting the silk in the old silk farms or whatever. It's kind of taking the same model that he knew from his family history and applying it to software because these guys were not well regarded in Japanese society, which means that they didn't have a lot of bargaining power. Mm-hmm. They were guys that liked doing computer game programming. And so he was like, come make games for me. He discovered very quickly that there wasn't much of a market for it in Japan at that time because the computers hadn't really penetrated the Japanese market yet. There were some early Apple IIs in, there was some early Commodore stuff in, but it was really not until a couple years later, more like 1982, 1983, that there started to be a Japanese computer game industry that you could really take seriously. He decided that if he was really going to make any money on this, he really needed to get his games to the West, where there's an actual home computer market where people actually have Apple II. Amazing. (laughs) But he doesn't go there directly. He uses an intermediary, an an import-export business that can navigate some of the crazy customs regulations and can navigate the international business climate. You know, he doesn't feel competent to be able to do that himself. So he goes through a guy named Miyoshi, who runs this import-export business. And Miyoshi is at the West Coast Computer Fair. They kind of get to know each other a little bit. Doug and Gary see the guy's games that he has, the StarCraft games that he has, and are very impressed by them. Miyoshi gets to familiarize himself with the Broderbun people and kind of likes them. They make a deal where the three games that Miyoshi has with him, Broderbund will actually distribute those, publish those, and distribute them in the United States. Those games, they're middling arcade ports. They're not particularly special. So they get some sales on that. It definitely helps them out, but eh. It only helps out a little bit. It doesn't help out hugely. So then a couple of interesting things happen after that. You know, the sales are still kind of stuttering along a bit. Then the basketball team re-enters the picture, the Swedish basketball team. Several members of the team are coming to San Francisco. They stayed in touch. They stayed in touch with Gary. Gary liked them. They liked Gary. It was Everyone was friends. So they wanted to see him while they were in the United States on vacation. So they're like, hey, we're going to be in San Francisco. You should come down and see us. Remember, the Carlstons are up in Eugene, Oregon. Gary's like, okay, but I have no money. This is the point of time where the company is not doing that great. Many months, they're not selling anything at all. Other months, they're barely selling anything. Some stories say that it was actually the team members that arranged to get him a ticket. But from what I can tell, it was another friend. I mean, I don't know who this friend was, but another friend in San Francisco learned of his plight and was like, oh, I'll buy you a ticket. You know, I'll buy you a ticket, a one-way ticket. How you get back to Oregon is up to you. <laughs> but I'll buy you a ticket, a plane ticket to get down here. They decide that when Gary goes, he should take his software with him. San Francisco, Bay Area. 
Not quite Silicon Valley in these days because the Bay Area wasn't really part of the tech scene yet, but still close enough to Silicon Valley that this is a happening scene in terms of computer stores and whatnot. Gary goes down to see the team, the basketball team members, not the whole team, but the three or four that are there, and takes software with him so that he can peddle it to the local stores. And he has a good trip. He definitely makes more than he needs to just buy a plane ticket back home. Doesn't get stranded. Well, that makes them realize that they really need to get out on the road and start drumming up sales. Doug gets a car, rents a car, I think, because, you know, he doesn't have his car anymore. It went kablooey. And does a cross-country road trip. He zigzags across the country, stopping in computer stores as he goes and demoing the game. Because it's one thing to call someone up on the phone and say, like, hey... I got these computer programs here. You should stock those in your store because I say they're cool. And it's quite a different thing to have someone show up and go, hey, you got an apple over there? Great. Here, let me plug this game in. Take a look at this. Ooh, that looks pretty. Except not even that. What he would usually do is wait until the person at the counter or whatever had gone into the back for some reason and then go over to the Apple II computer, which at this point is just there. It's on, but it's just got blinking cursor. They're not demoing software. Stick his disk in that Apple II, start the program up. The program has music or whatever, or sound effects as part of it. Person in back hears this noise out front, comes running out to see if the store is being robbed, and sees this game playing. And it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. So even (laughs) you're exactly right, except sometimes even another level of duplicity (laughs) beyond that, you know, well, not duplicity, but, you know, another level of salesmanship beyond that. He does pretty well on the sales trip that helps them start to get enough of a base going that they can start attracting the attention of the nascent distribution industry that's starting to pop up. Most importantly, soft sell, which, again, we've talked about in passing before. By far the most important computer game distributor of this early time period. We talked about them particularly in the Sierra episode because you may recall that it basically started when Ken Williams said to Bob Leff, it's like, yeah, I'm doing this distribution stuff through online systems, but it's getting too complicated. I can't do that and be a publisher here. You have my distribution. And offhandedly created the most powerful (laughs) distribution company. Yeah, that allows them to get into soft sell a bit. The final piece of the puzzle that they need is kind of a a real hit game. Nothing that they've done so far has been, some of it's done okay, but none of it's been a big hit. They get this actually from their good old friend StarCraft, but in a roundabout way. They have these Japanese games, which even though these first three are kind of middling, not selling real well, they still look really slick. They're really well done. So they decide that they should try to get more of these Japanese games. So they actually put an ad in some random Japanese magazine in Japan being like, hey, if you have games, you should get in touch with us and we'll sell them in the States. The story varies a little bit from telling to telling. I'm a little unclear whether Nakazawa saw that ad and that's why he contacted them or not. The ad makes a good story either way, but I'm not sure whether that was the catalyst for contact or not. But one way or the other... This results in this making of contact. Nakazawa is selling his games in the United States through this Miyoshi character. And that's his last name, Miyoshi. I don't have the first name. It's not like Mi-Oshi. It's Miyoshi, one word. 
turns out that Miyoshi is taking a very generous commission for being the middleman. So Nakazawa is not seeing that great a return on his exports to the United States because Miyoshi is taking so much of it. So Nakazawa decides to come to the United States himself, find a company that he can sell to directly, eliminating the import-export nonsense, and therefore get a bigger cut of the profit on the games that he's making. Or not he's making, but that he has these programmers making for him, who, by the way, aren't exactly getting the biggest cut of the profits from Nakazawa either. So it goes. (laughs) He does not come to the States with the intent of having Broderbund be that company. He's going to see another company in, I think it's Los Angeles. So it might have been online systems. It would make sense that it was online systems, but I don't know that it was. All I know from the stories that I've heard is that he was planning to go through a company in Los Angeles. Online systems would make sense for that, but I don't know. He stops by Broderbund specifically. Now, the Carlstons don't know this, obviously. He's not telling them this at the time. But he stops by Broderbund only so he can say, I've met with this other company and they're really interested. So if you want my games, you're going to have to pay me this much more to get them. It's entirely part of his negotiating tactic to drive up the price with his real target. So Doug Carlston at this point does not know much about Japanese culture. But he read something once about Middle Eastern culture about the sheiks in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and all of this. And what he read about Middle Eastern individuals is that they're not impressed by Americans that have money. There's kind of this whole idea of the self-made man, the American dream, yada yada, rags to riches. They figure, at least at this time, and at least according to this magazine article or whatever that Doug Carlston read, I couldn't tell you if this is true, but this is what Doug Carlston believed to be true based on what he read. They believe that since anyone can make money in the United States, you cannot tell a person's intelligence or breeding or class based on whether they're rich or not, like you could in a Middle Eastern country where it's more oligarchical and the people with money are the same people that have had money for generations. So what you can do, though, is look at their education, look at where they were educated Because if they went to a really good school, chances are, because they're so expensive, that they're upper-class members of society because they could afford to pay the bill. Even if they're not from upper-class society, that means that they were smart enough to get into those institutions, which means there's still something going on there. They're of a class that these sheiks feel comfortable interacting with. As I said, is that true? I don't know. But that's what Doug read. So he figures there's probably some similarities between the way the Japanese do business and the way the Arabs do business. He and Gary both went to Harvard. So he decided that he would put out the latest issue of the Harvard alumni magazine that he had just received, put it out on the table in a prominent place in their home. They're working out of a a home. (laughs) They don't really have an office. So that when Nakazawa walks in, he'll see this magazine and know that they went to Harvard and then be impressed. Mm Mm-hmm. That's not how it works in Japan. Japan doesn't care about that. And again, this is just according to the way Doug tells the story. Doug or Gary, I forget which one, told this part, but I think it was Doug. Nakazawa was kind of the one person that this would work on in Japan because of that connection I told you before. He was a commoner, so he was of low birth, but friends with someone in the imperial family. 
So he was someone that walked between different worlds and could appreciate being someone who was cultured, even if they weren't aristocratic. It works. He sees the magazine and he's like, oh, Harvard. And so they spend two hours just talking about culture stuff because he sees a kindred spirit here with these Harvard guys. Because of that, he ends up giving them the deal. He was not planning to. It was just a negotiating ploy, but he decides to give them the deal because he really likes these guys. As Doug likes to say, it's the only time he got any use out of his Harvard education. (laughs) So they get the deal directly from StarCraft. And one of the games that StarCraft has now is a Galaxian clone. We've talked about Galaxian before the Namco game. Kind of the next evolution of Space Invaders, where instead of having bunkers, it's open space. And instead of having black and white graphics or an overlay for solid colors, you have multicolored sprites that are very impressive. And you have aliens swooping at you all the time that you have to dodge while you're shooting them. You know, the Forerunner to Galaga. We, of course, discussed it before. This Galaxian port clone, unauthorized. This was not licensed from Namco. (laughs) Because, as we've also talked before, there was no real settled copyright law in Japan on software until 1982. This is pre-1982. A really slick programmer named Tony Suzuki in Japan has created this nearly flawless, or as flawless as you can get on an Apple II at least, clone of Galaxian that he has called Apple Galaxian. This is one of the games that now Broderboon gets to market. Just a really slick game at a time when, you may recall, this is late 1980, December 1980, at a time when arcades are absolutely exploding and these Twitch games are really popular and they're really popular amongst the home computer set too. They changed the name because the copyright law is just a wee bit trickier in the United States and if they released something that was called Galaxian, Midway, which was Namco's North American manufacturer, probably going to notice that and maybe not be happy about it. So they changed the name of the game to Alien Rain, but it's essentially Galaxian. This game is so good that Soft Cell, because now they're just getting in with their distributor Soft Cell, Soft Cell orders 5,000 of them, boom, right off the bat, to which Doug and Gary reply, That's great, but we don't have the money to produce 5,000 copies of this game. Because they haven't made much money at this point. I Mm -hmm. mean, doing duplication on floppy disk is really not that expensive compared to, like, cartridges, as we discussed before. But they have so little money that they can't even afford to do the duplication and the packaging and the shipping for 5,000 copies Mm -hmm. of this game. So the soft sell guys are basically like, okay, that's no problem. We will lend you the money that you need to produce these games on the stipulation that all of the copies of the game you produce, all 5,000 or whatever that you make, you give to us. So they do the deal. And Alien Rain is a huge hit. That's the beginning of Broderbund taking off. It's the first big hit they have. So at this point, the group of two very soon after in early 1981 becomes a group of three because their sister. Kathy Carlston joins the company. Kathy is the adopted sibling of the Carlstons. She was adopted by Doug and Gary's father when she was six years old. I would imagine from China, but I don't know that. You see pictures of her. She's passed on, unfortunately. But when you see pictures of her, I mean, she's she's Asian. I don't know if she's from China or, or another country, but 
she's from somewhere around there, which is neither here nor there. I mean, they consider her their sister. And, you know, I mean, they're a close knit family. She came into the family when she was six years old and her love was fashion. She got her degree in fashion design and she went to New York, worked her way up to buyer at a boutique called Lord and Taylor. She was doing well. She was living the dream in Manhattan in the fashion scene and all of that. But she discovered that, A, the fashion scene wasn't as glamorous as she had hoped it would be. And B, she didn't really want to live in Manhattan. So just like Doug and Gary had gotten burned out and were looking for something else just a couple of years before, Kathy decides that she no longer wants to be involved in her line of work. Her brothers convince her to come out and join them in Oregon and help out with odds and ends, with office duties, with the books, and all of this and that. So Gary is kind of taking the role of the lead salesman and the lead production guy. Doug's kind of running the company and I guess probably interfacing some with developers and whatnot. Kathy comes in and helps pick up odd tasks around the office and doing the books and and that kind of thing. Now, there's three Carlstons involved in this business together. Not too long into the year, StarCraft really pressures them to make a change. The problem with Eugene, Oregon, in addition to the fact that it is not in a technology center, is that they have problems with fog in Eugene, Oregon. There would be times when they could not ship product out of Eugene because it's fogged in. The planes can't fly, the ships can't leave, however they're traveling. They can't get their software out for distribution. And in this business, where especially at that time when it's a young business and games are being released on top of each other, it's a business where you need to move fast. When you have a product that's doing well, you need to get it in the marketplace and you need to sell it because a few weeks from now, it may not be doing well anymore. Something else is going to come along. Nakazawa really pressures them to be like, okay, guys, you need to leave Eugene, Oregon. This is no good. They have a choice. They can move north or they can move south. They can move to Seattle. Microsoft's in Seattle. Nintendo's in Seattle, but Nintendo doesn't matter yet. But the big thing is Microsoft is in Seattle. Or they can move to Silicon Valley slash the Bay Area. Gary prefers Seattle. Gary really wanted them to move to Seattle. But you may have heard it rains in Seattle. Maybe. And the week that they were up there to scout out Seattle, it rained the entire week they were there. So Doug was like, "Mm, no, thank you. So they decide to move south instead, and they end up in San Rafael in the Bay Area so that they're kind of closer to the heart of what's going on in computer software. And over the next couple of years, they continue to bring in several more big hits all through submissions, going to shows, meeting people, having games submitted to them, etc. The big one is a game called Choplifter. Are you familiar with that one? I don't think so. All right. It was a pretty big hit in its day, but it would have been a big hit on the Apple II uh, especially. So this one actually came from a gentleman named Dan Gorlin. Again, it's a submission, just like all of these early Broderbund games tend to be. Dan Gorlin was doing kind of really advanced AI kind of research with the Rand Corporation down in L.A. He wasn't really fiddling around with microcomputers at all. But then he had to sell his house. He was 
selling his house in Los Angeles, and he got a Apple II to kind of fiddle around with while he was going through that process and really kind of became fascinated in being able to program on these new microcomputers and started programming this helicopter for no other reason than that he had just always been fascinated with helicopters. And he wanted to get this thing flying around the screen and shooting at stuff and all of this and looking kind of cool just as an exercise. During all of this process, there's this kid, and when I say kid, a teenager most likely, that's doing repairs on his car out in the driveway outside, doing repairs on Dan Gorland's car. And he comes in and he sees this thing that's going on, and this kid being in with the arcade scene at the time, as so many teenagers were, thought immediately of Defender, the classic arcade game, and told Dan, you should really put some little men in there to pick up. Dan Gorlin really didn't know anything about the arcade scene. He wasn't involved in that. He was a little older. So he went down to the local laundromat, which had a Defender cabinet, and he looked at that, and he was like, oh, I see. That is kind of cool. So he added this whole rescue element to it. As he puts it in interviews, he wasn't specifically inspired necessarily by the Iran hostage situation that had concluded a couple of years or just about a year, I suppose, previously. That was the embassy takeover during the Iranian Revolution, and they held a bunch of Americans there hostage for many, many months over a couple of years. There had been a rescue attempt in the middle of that using helicopters that failed absolutely miserably. So this is something that was kind of in the zeitgeist of the time. So he was probably subtly influenced by that. But the primary thing was he loved helicopters. And then the kid was like, you should make it like Defender and it'll be cool. So he creates this game where you're flying around, shooting at enemies and picking up these guys on the ground, these hostages. He calls it Choplifter. He submits it to Broderboon because Broderboon is a company that's out there. I can't remember if it's the only one he submits it to or not, but they definitely have a reputation by now. They've had some successful games. Uh, the Broderboon people are instantly taken with it, and they go on and publish that in 1982. We'll, of course, put the game in the show notes. It's hard to describe, kind of with our knowledge now, just how brilliant Choplifter was in its own time. So you may recall from when we did our kind of early computer hardware episode that the Apple II uses a bitmap for its screen. There are no sprites. There are no hardware sprites on the Apple II. If you are moving the screen, you are moving the entire screen. You have to redraw the whole thing because it's a bitmap. There's no shortcuts with sprites. So you could scroll on the Apple II. But to get something scrolling really smoothly was very difficult because it was very hardware intensive without having the capability to use sprites and scroll registers. Just had to move the whole screen. Choplifter was just so smooth, such a smooth scrolling game that it attracted tons of attention, tons of plaudits, tons of accolades, and was a massive seller. It knocked VisiCalc off the uh, top of the software charts, which uh, was no mean feat during the height of the VisiCalc craze there in 1982. Massive, massive hit that came from outside the company. We're talking about the early 80s here. This is before the Nintendo has come to the United States, before the Nintendo is in Japan, really. You're still talking Atari-level graphics here and being able to have something very arcade-like with smooth scrolling 
and having that work really well on a PC with Atari level graphics plus, mm-hmm. that's unheard of. Absolutely. Therefore, it becomes a massive hit. Uh, another one is they get a pinball game. A guy, David Snyder, comes up to them at a computer show of some kind and is like, I have this really great pinball game. You should take a look at it. And they do take a look at it. And it's like, this is a good pinball game. So they do David's Midnight Magic, also in 1982, which is another big hit. So the next big hit comes in 1983, and that's a game called Load Runner. I believe you are familiar with that one, aren't you, Jeff? I played it a lot on the Commodore 64. Yeah, that's what I thought. Load Runner actually has a kind of interesting backstory. The game is submitted to Broderbund by a programmer named Douglas Smith, but the concept actually did not start with him. He was not the originator of the entire concept. What a lot of people don't realize is that the original programmer on the game was an individual named James Bratsanos. I may be mispronouncing that, but it's B-R-A-T-S-A-N-O-S. Bratsanos was a high school student, a math programming prodigy, whatever, as so many of these early people are. He was programming on a Commodore PET that nobody else was using in the school, was learning basic and tinkering around with it. He had done some basic programs, but wanted to do something a little more complex just for the challenge of it. It wasn't really about games for him specifically. He just wanted to do an interesting routine or an interesting algorithm or an interesting something. A friend of his came in one day and told him about an arcade game he had just been playing. Now, in the interview that James gave with RetroGamer that I'm getting a lot of this information from, he does not specify what the arcade game is, but based on the gameplay of Load Runner, it has to be the pioneering platform game Space Panic by Universal. Space Panic is the very first game that had this idea of moving between multiple platforms. It had no jump capability. The protagonist couldn't jump, but there were platforms connected by ladders. You could move around these ladders. And there were monsters that you had to avoid, and you could dig holes to trap the monster. Then once you dug the hole and trapped the monster, you had to hit the monster, you know, run and collide with the monster to cause it to be defeated and disappear. And you had to clear the screen of all the monsters. So platforms, ladders, holes, that has to be. That's pretty much sound very verbatim, like uh, Load Runner. Exactly. Now, in terms of graphics, in terms of presentation and everything else, it's a very different game from Load Runner. But the description that this other guy, the high school friend, we don't have his name, gave to James was a very vague and not necessarily accurate description. So he was not setting out to make a clone of Space Panic. So many of these early games that are being made in this time period are straight up clones of arcade games. That's not what Bratsanis was going for. He just had this basic idea. It's like, okay, there's platforms, there's ladders, there's enemies to avoid, there's things to collect, and you dig holes. You know, and so he took these basic elements and he started crafting a game out of them. The thing that interested him and the thing that he did that was very interesting was coming up with an AI routine for the enemies. Because even though Load Runner is kind of a platform game in the sense that there are platforms and you're running around and all of that, It's really more of a puzzle game than it is a platform game, if that makes sense. It does, and little me would love to have known what this puzzle was so I wouldn't die in level one over and over and over. Ooh, I got to level two. Oh, I'm dead. 
<laughs> because you have to collect treasures and you have to avoid and or dispose of enemies. The way many levels of Load Runner are built, there's kind of a certain order to what you have to do, a certain path to what you have to do in order to make everything come out right in the end. The reason that it became much more of a puzzler than anything else goes straight back to what Brett Sanos was doing in the very first version of the game, which at this time was not called Load Runner, it was actually called Suicide. And what that was is he did an AI routine where the enemies in the game would calculate the shortest path to you and then would move along the shortest path to you. They only moved when you moved. You see, they weren't moving constantly on their own. They only moved when you moved. When you moved, they would start taking the shortest path towards you in order to try to stop you. But the key, the thing that made it stand apart, because other games had done that before, is that if the AI did not see an advantageous short path towards you, the enemy would just stay still. It would only go after you if it calculated that it had a chance to catch you. Insidious. Exactly. So this created a situation where you don't just have all of the enemies swarming you all at once, trying to get you as fast as possible. Some enemies wait. Some enemies move a little bit and then stop. So you almost have this puzzle situation that develops. It's like I'm taking steps towards them. They're taking steps towards me. How do I avoid them? How do I stop them from coming at me? It scales really well. You can have a ton of enemies in there because since it's just a matter of each one looks where you are and then looks what the shortest path is and decides to take that path, if it's advantageous, it scales to however many enemies you want. Thus increasing the difficulty, the challenge, the game. Exactly. It's this algorithm that fascinates James, and he's just doing this for his own amusement. If it was just left up to James Bretzanos, it's very possible this game would have never been released. So now we fast forward to 1981. This is presumably all happening in 1980, which makes it even more likely that the game in question was Space Panic, because Space Panic was released in 1980. Fast forward to 1981, and our friend James is now in college. He is attending the University of Washington. He's getting more immersed in programming. He's taking programming courses. I don't know if his major is CS, but he's definitely moving in that direction. And he gets a job in the computer lab maintaining one of their VAX machines. The VAX was a computer that was made by DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, that we would essentially call a workstation today. I mean, it was kind of a mini computer, but kind of a workstation, kind of straddling the line. Workstations weren't a thing yet, but if they had been a thing, they probably would have called the Vax one, but it was a mini computer. So he was uh, responsible for helping maintain that. And he makes friends with another guy called Tracy Steinbeck. And the two of them start rewriting this suicide game to work on the Vax. This is the point that Douglas Smith gets involved because Douglas Smith is also working in that computer lab. And he's also working on that fax machine. And he sees what these guys are doing and takes an interest and starts working on it some as well. Douglas Smith was a little older than some of these guys. He had a nephew and he would bring his nephew around to play the game on this fax where they're working on it. By now, this game has morphed into something called Minor. It's continuing to evolve. His nephew had a lot of fun playing the game on the computer. 
But of course, it's on this big vax. He has to come to the computer lab to play it. So one day his nephew basically asks him, it's like, why can't I take this home? I've got an Apple II at home. Why can't I take this really awesome game home and play it on my system? And so he'd have to explain, well, it doesn't work that way. It's on this mainframe. You can't just save it and then it won't interact with your Apple II because different processors, different this. It's complicated. (laughs) That's right. Well, his nephew's having none of that. So his nephew keeps bugging him and bugging him and bugging him. And finally, Douglas Smith is like, "Okay, fine, I'll do it. You see, this is the point that James leaves the picture. James didn't have an Apple II. James wasn't really interested in the microcomputer world at this point. So he wasn't really interested in, in being a part of it anymore. So I think it's probably fair to say that Douglas Smith had his blessing. I don't know if there was an official, like bestowing of the blessing. But it's it's not like Douglas Smith stole it. I mean, James made a conscious decision not to be involved anymore at this point. So Douglas Smith is the one that most people that follow this stuff know as the author of Load Runner, and he is to a large extent, but it actually didn't originate with him. It originated with this other guy. So Doug polishes it up, gets the, the gameplay working, gets it converted to the Apple II, and then he submits it around, and he sends it to Broderbund, and Broderbund rejects it. No. Doug wasn't going to give up that easily. Since it had come from a Commodore PET, which didn't do sprites or bitmaps, the very original version, Suicide, was just character-based graphics. Your hero was an at sign, just like in Rogue. It moved to a Vax, which wasn't necessarily designed for this graphical stuff either, so the gameplay was solid. But nobody had taken the time to get the graphics and the animation and the scrolling and the movement up to par for an Apple II game in 1982. He takes some time, he improves it, he resubmits it, and this time it becomes a big hit. It becomes a big hit for two reasons, both because it has these good AI routines that make it an interesting puzzle game more than just a pure action platforming game, and also because Doug Smith decides to leave the level editor that they used to create the individual stages in the game deliberately so that other people can make their own levels. This is one of the first, if not the very first, one of the earliest games that allowed you to make your own levels and make your own levels with the same tools the developers were using. So you could make levels just as easily as they could. So that spawned a whole level creating scheme and they actually created a sequel then, Championship Load Runner, Broderboon did where they took the hardest levels, some of the most challenging levels that other people had made, and bundled them all together and released it as Championship Load Runner. So this is another huge hit. I think it sells over 100,000 copies, not positive, but another big hit for Broderboot. So they're doing it entirely through these submissions from outside developers. They don't have much talent on staff. There are a couple of guys... Brian Eller and Chris Jockmanson that are on staff and I think also create a couple of games in there in addition to their other duties. But they're primarily doing it through an acquisition model. They're not doing it through an internal development model. So, you know, a lot of these early companies were founded by the business guy and the developer guy. Right, Sirius Software, which we talked about before, is Jerry Jewell, the business guy, and Nasir, the excellent programmer. Online Systems is a little bit different because Ken Williams is both the master programmer and the business guy, but Roberta Williams is the one that cares about making games, so she's the designer. So it's the marriage of these two. 
Broderboon starts out a little bit the same way in the sense that Doug has programmed some games and Gary is a guy that's had some experience in business and they come together to form Broderboon. But Doug gets out of the programming game immediately. I mean, those first three games and that uh, little accounting software or whatever that he did, that's all he ever does. He is not the programmer driving this thing forward. They're getting their product from other sources. They're getting this big Japan deal, and they're getting this uh, submissions from around like Dan Gorlin, Douglas Smith, etc. The model that they form out of this is very much an acquisitions-driven model. What they decide they're going to do is they are going to have a small number of editorial people, game developers, whatever, that they call them, you know, kind of editorial people on staff that can provide advice on games, that can provide some support on games, and can do the porting of games from system to system. But the product is going to, by and large, come from outside the company. It's somewhere between some of the other models we've seen. It's not the electronic arts model. At first glance, it might sound like it's a little close to the electronic arts model, but they don't have the concept of a producer. They have product managers at Broderbund in this time period, the early 1980s we're talking about, 82, 83, 84, 85. But they're not producers. They don't have broad control over budget. They're basically just interfaces between the company and outside developers. So the outside developers working on this, it's more like an acquisitions editor at a publisher. I mean, they're kind of keeping tabs on the project. If they need a little help, they can try to send a resource their way. But they don't have control over the budget. They don't have control over the market position. They're not actively involved in the design of the game. So it's not an electronic arts model where you have producers in-house and outside talent. But it's also not uh, an online systems model, which was a model you may recall where you have a lot of people on staff and you lure the people to your staff by giving them massive royalties on the games that they make. But you're actually having them come out to the mountains and work at online systems. It's somewhere kind of in between these two extremes. It's we are going to have helpers on staff and we're going to have porters on staff. But we're going to rely almost exclusively on outside designers to actually create the games, and then we'll pay them a royalty. The way this plays out in practice is very interesting. The Carlstons are very nice people, like I said, and they're very concerned about finding good product and finding good talent and helping to nurture that good talent. So if somebody submits a game to them and they decide that that game isn't good enough, they won't just reject the game outright. If they see promise there, they'll say, well, we're not going to publish the game as it is. But why don't you go back and work on this, this, and this, resubmit it, and then we'll talk. If a programmer needs a place to hang out to finish a game so that they can concentrate on the game, they'll provide them an office space too, even though they're not employees. And so a great example of all of this this idea that they're providing feedback, that they're providing support staff, that they're providing a place for programmers, is their next big hit after Load Runner, which is the game Karateka by Jordan Mechner, who is far better known today for Prince of Persia, which we will be getting to further down the line in our Broderboon discussion, but we'll not be talking about quite yet. Jordan Mechner 
was a student at Yale. So very smart guy. He was involved in film studies. He wanted to be a screenwriter. His first love really was to get into the movie business. He was also involved with arcade games. He was a big gamer as well. So that was something that he liked. And he was involved in programming. So he was fiddling around and he created a version of Asteroids, the hit Atari arcade game for the Apple II. This was just about the time that Atari was getting more and more assertive on its intellectual property right and going after those people that were making straight up clones of their games. So he had this Asteroids game, but he knew he couldn't do anything with it because Atari would definitely come after him because it was, it was basically just Asteroids. So he modified it slightly. He changed the graphics. Instead of asteroids, there were these bouncing balls bouncing around. So he called it Death Bounce. Interestingly enough, Death Bounce was never released, but a few years ago after George Mechner gave a talk about some of his early stuff, some people were like, hey, we want to see this Death Bounce game. Can't we see this Death Bounce game? So it's actually been released now. We can put that in the show notes. But it never actually came out at the time. But you can play the modern version. Yes. Well, I mean, it's the old version. It's not like he, like, gussied it up. He released the actual disc image because he still had it for this game that he had created all these years ago in the early 1980s. Never got released. So he's a bit death-bounced to Broderbund. And Broderbund could have just said, thank you for your interest, but we don't want to publish this, blah, blah, blah. Could have done that. But that's not what Doug Carlston did. He was very polite. He said, yeah, thanks for submitting this. You know, you're clearly talented. I don't think this is quite a good enough product to sell. But why don't you check out the game that we have just released, Choplifter? And he gave him a copy of this, of Choplifter. Take a look at this. That may help you improve your game, you know, in the future. Didn't have to do that, but actually gave him Choplifter so he could see this is the kind of cool stuff we're doing now. This is the quality of game that we want. He boots up Choplifter on his Apple II and he is blown away by it. And he's blown away, again, by that smooth scrolling, that great animation. Because you just did not really see that on an Apple II very often. Choplifter was kind of the first game... Like I said, was it the very first? I don't know about that. But in terms of mainstream successes, it was the first game that really showed the full potential of what you could do on an Apple II graphically. George Mechner's like, wow, I want to make a game that scrolls as smoothly as Choplifter on the Apple II. That became his new goal. Now, he wasn't just going to slavishly copy it. He wasn't going to make another helicopter game. He's going to school. He's doing film studies. So he's very into Kurosawa, Japanese famous filmmaker, does a lot of samurai flicks especially. He's very into this Eastern aesthetic. He's taking karate lessons, martial arts lessons. I think karate, but martial arts lessons. So he's kind of very into this martial arts thing. And he's been really kind of studying the early silent films, the films of people like D.W. Griffith, which had to use a lot of expressive techniques to convey any kind of plot or emotion because they're silent films. You can't do the voice thing in order to convey inflection, frustration, or whatever. You have to really emote it. Right. So he takes all of these influences, martial arts, Kurosawa, early silent films, and mixes them all together, and he comes up with this karate game. That's why it's Karateka. Karateka is someone who's practicing karate, where you have to rescue a princess from an evil lord 
and you have to fight through all of his minions on the way. So it's a fighting game. It's a beat-em-up, but it's not like Double Dragon where you're being swarmed by guys because this is very early. This is more primitive technology. So it's a series of one-on-one combats. As very much in the vein of, say, Karate Champ or something. Exactly, except that it's not a one-on-one between potentially you and another player. It's not a fighting game. It's it's a beat-em-up, but yes, kind of one-on-one just like uh, a Karate Champ would be. In our fighting game episode, we talked about a bunch of different games like this, and I think a game very similar to that came up where you're trying to storm a castle and... Might have even been Karatek. I can't remember. <laughs> we might have mentioned this in our fighting episode. But we didn't go into depth on it. I know we didn't go into depth on the creation of it. Mm-hmm. I say I know that, and then someone will listen to the episode and prove me a liar. But we're going to do it again anyway. <laughs> so so send us an email and show us if Alex is a liar or not. <laughs> That's right. We'll give you a shout out. So it has these series of one-on-one combats in this castle. It's one of the first games to have cutscenes as well. They're very primitive cutscenes. There's no dialogue or anything. But you see, he was inspired by silent movies again. Because one way that silent movies would ratchet up the tension would be to do what was called cross-cutting, where you're focusing on one set of action and then you cut to something else. So you have the woman tied to the train tracks and cut to the train coming down the train tracks and then cut to the hero on his horse frantically trying to get to the train tracks then cut back to the train doing all of this cross-cutting amongst different elements to create tension because you can't convey that tension through sound or through dialogue or any of that. You have these occasional cutaways to the evil lord and the princess and him sending out his minions and sending out his, like, eagle that also does stuff for him. He's got this game mostly done up, and then he sends it off to Broderbund again, and this time they're very interested. But they don't just take it and publish it as is. They have him come out. They have him work with them and work with their people on staff. These guys that we talked about, like Gene Portwood and Lauren Elliott, who are really good with graphics and animation, help him figure out some of the animation stuff he's doing. He's done most of it through rotoscoping, which I know we talked about the last time we talked about the game as well. He filmed his teacher doing a bunch of moves and then traced over them in order to do the animation. But he gets some help smoothing out the animation and the gameplay from the experts at Broderbund, and he actually goes out there for like six months to finish up the game. Broderbund at this point actually uh, didn't mention this earlier. Their first office in San Rafael, or I don't know if it was their very first, but at least the office there in this time period, was actually an old liquor store. Hmm. The old liquor store had a freezer in the back for, you know, the cold alcoholic beverages need to be kept cold. And so the programmers actually hung out in the freezer. Obviously, it's not turned on anymore. It's not a freezer anymore. It's a self-contained lightless room with a a door with a good seal on it because Mm -hmm. it's a freezer. And so that's where the programmers would hang out because, of course, programmers don't want any light because it ruins the glare of the light on their monitor, ruins their perception of what their game looks like. (laughs) Actually, in reality, us programmers are really just vampires and we burn in the sunlight. That's right. Curse you, Day Orb. Yes, Day Orb. They've managed to booby-trap their sun. So, yeah, so they're in this old freezer (laughs) coding away. So he finishes up the game at Broderboon. It's all the stuff we were talking about before. Don't just reject a game, but mentor people because the Carlstons are such nice individuals, genuinely nice, helpful individuals. And take submissions 
but don't just take the submission as is, but spend a little bit of time working with the programmer with the on-staff talent to get it as good as it can be. Karateka is a massive hit. It sells 500,000 copies. Not all of those are on the Apple II because they're also getting involved in the early market for the Famicom in Japan. We talked about how they had this deal with StarCraft, where they were bringing StarCraft's games over to the United States, and that's how they had their, big hit, their first big hit, Alien Reign. Well, StarCraft starts to fall apart in this time period, like 83, 84, or whatever, because the industry is beginning to mature a little more in Japan. Nakazawa-san was really not treating his programmers all that well. He wasn't giving them a lot of money for their successes. So he was having trouble keeping programmers now that the industry was getting bigger and there were more opportunities. So StarCraft didn't go away, but it wasn't this great source of brilliant software that it was in the beginning of the relationship. You see, when Broderbund started this relationship, they got a liaison, a woman that was working with Nakazawa, who came and became, I don't know if she became an employee of Broderbund, but she was at least working in the Broderbund office. And she became the liaison between Broderbund and the programmers they were dealing with in Japan and the companies they were dealing with in Japan, like StarCraft. So because they had this resource, because they had this woman, they started making contact with other companies in Japan. When the Famicom comes along and third parties start getting on the Famicom in 1984, they're in need of product. And obviously, most of the early product on the Famicom are ports of arcade games. But you see, Broderbund has these great games like Choplifter and like Load Runner that play very similar to arcade games and even get converted to arcade games. There was a Choplifter arcade game that was put out by Sega. There was a Load Runner arcade game that was put out by Irem. The rare example of a computer game being ported to the arcade instead of an arcade game being ported to the computer. So these were games that had appeal and which were known in Japan through these arcade versions. So using this woman as the go-between, Broderbund is able to get its games on the Famicom in 1984 and 1985. Loadrunner is a big hit in 1984. It's released by Hudson Soft, which was the first third-party developer on the system. It was called Roadrunner in Japan because it's that whole LR thing. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's Loadrunner, and it sells like a million units. Popular. Karateka is released in 1985. I don't know what it sold in total on the system. It was definitely less than a million, but it sold 250,000 in its first month of availability on the Famicom. So a lot of those half million units that Karateka sold were not on the Apple II, which is a smaller market. A lot of it was on the Famicom. And then they had a third game as well. This game was called Raid on Bungling Bay, and it was created by some young guy named Will Wright. Hmm. Not sure if we'll hear about him anymore after this. Yeah. <laughs> so Will Wright is in New York, and he's involved in all sorts of stuff. Will Wright is a true genius. I mean, he's actually a guy that's a genius. We won't go into his full background now because Will Wright could support his own episode <laughs> very easily. But he was a genius that had all sorts of interests. He was interested in robotics. He was interested in film stuff. He was interested in 
computer games. He was interested in all sorts of things. And he was fascinated by John Conway's Game of Life. I believe we've talked about life before. We're not talking about the board game. We're talking about the computer game. It's a very popular example of doing very simple AI. Many coders tend to use life as a demonstration of their skill in order to show, hey, I can understand this concept. I can recreate the life game with this thing and I can make it do interesting things. I've seen interesting stuff with life where I got life running here and then by having life go and I tweak these algorithms, I could have it make this life-shaped spaceship Mm. launch. And then inside the spaceship is life. Exactly. So the thing that appealed to Will Wright and to many other people as well about life is that you got complexity from simplicity. The rules of life are simple. The organisms, the blobs, the whatever you want to call them, expand into squares that are adjacent to squares that already have life, and then they keep going until it finally runs out of steam if there's no other adjacent place to, to expand. The rules are so simple, but you can get such astoundingly complex patterns just by tweaking your starting cells. So this idea of complexity out of simplicity really appealed to Will Wright. And he also really just liked helicopters. That's a, that's a whole other thing. He just, he liked helicopters. Military, civilian, didn't matter. He loved helicopters. He wanted to get into game programming, but he felt he was too late to get on the Apple II, because we're talking about 1983 or 1984 now. The game comes out in 84. I don't know if he's working on it at this point in late 1983, but around there. Choplifters already happened. It's all been done. The people that are really good at programming on the Apple II are already squeezing every last ounce, every last drop out of that Apple II. It's too late for him, in his mind, to become an elite programmer on the Apple II. He's too far behind. But now the Commodore 64 has come out. Now everyone's back to ground zero. Everyone has to learn the system over again. So he decides that he wants to do the Commodore 64. He decides he wants to feature a helicopter because he likes helicopters. He decides that because the Commodore 64, unlike the Apple II, has sprite hardware and scrolling registers, which makes it very easy to scroll around the screen, he decides that he wants to create a game world that's huge, that you can get lost in, that scrolls in multiple directions. It's a big world. Mm -hmm. Because he likes life and he likes the idea of complexity out of simplicity, he decides that the world that this helicopter is flying around in is going to have a lot of complex things going on. So there's the series of islands. There are resources in the water around the islands. There are boats going out to collect the resources to take them back to the manufacturing area. At the manufacturing area, they're creating the military units, and then they're creating the missiles. And it's like, it's this entire clockwork structure that's going on. It's actually not random at all, the way this world works. Like, everything is proceeding according to a hierarchical set of instructions that he's encoded in it. Basically, the helicopter is just there to blow everything up. It's like this complexity wouldn't necessarily be needed to make a shoot 'em up helicopter game, which is what Raid on Bungling Bay is. But he likes this idea of this clockwork stuff, so there's all this stuff going on on these islands, and you basically have to blow everything up. He creates this game. He takes it to Broderboon. He, he submits it to a lot of publishers, but he, he's drawn to Broderboon for the same reason a lot of people are, that Carlson's are just so darn nice. You know, just like Jordan Mechner with uh, Karateka, 
He gets some help from the in-house talent, from Lauren Elliott, from Gene Portwood, to kind of just improve things a little bit and put the finishing touches on this product. In 1984, he releases Raid on Bungling Bay. In the United States, it only sells about 20,000 units. Some of that is due to piracy. For the rest, who knows? But then it's ported to the Famicom in Japan, and it sells 800,000 units. It sells way more. It sells orders of magnitude more. Broderboon, thanks to this Japanese connection that goes all the way back to meeting the trade representative of StarCraft at the West Coast Computer Fair in 1980, is paying huge dividends because now they have these massive games on the Famicom. Now, they're not publishing them in Japan. They're licensing them. So they're not reaping the full benefits of those games being those big hits in Japan because they're collecting a a licensing fee and, and maybe a royalty or something. But still, three games selling multiple hundreds of thousands of units in the early days of the Famicom, Karateka, Raid on Bungling Bay, and Load Runner. They've been doing really well with this whole acquisitions thing. They are renowned as one of the top publishers on computers in the United States. They're them, Sierra, and, and Sirius Software, which ends up folding in the crash, are kind of considered the big three. If you're submitting your games around, Broderbund is going to be one of your stops. They could probably keep this thing going, not forever per se, but they could keep this thing going for a long time. But 1984 is the last year that games are their most profitable product category. But they made so much money. They did. But at the same time this is going on, they're discovering something new. They're discovering that there is this whole market for productivity software, home productivity software. They can create products that instead of just selling one copy to a person and then they're done, they can sell a copy, they can sell add-ons, then they can sell upgrades, and they can sell the new deluxe version, and they can go evergreen. This is a whole new phase for Broderbund, and it's where we will pick up the Broderbund story in part two of this look back at one of the most important computer game publishers of the 1980s and early 1990s. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to get out our desktop publishing software and delve into the mysteries of Broderboom next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Alex's book is forthcoming through DRC Press. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 